Father in heaven, one thing we have asked of you and that we will continue to seek after, that we may dwell in your house all the days of our life, to gaze upon your beauty and to inquire in your temple. Hear us, O Lord, as we call to you. Be gracious to us and answer us, for you have said, seek my face, and our hearts say to you now, your face, Lord, do we seek. Please do not hide your face from us, but reveal it to us in the face of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you teach us your way, O Lord, and lead us now on a level path, for we ask all this in Jesus' precious name, amen. Please be seated. And would you please turn with me in God's word to the book of Micah chapter 2, Micah chapter 2. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 776. In your Bible, you'll find that between the books of Jonah and Nahum towards the end of uh, the Old Testament. Nahum's not easy to find, but if you find it, you've gone too far. Um, Jonah and Nahum, between Jonah and Nahum, Micah chapter 2. And if you're visiting with us, we've started a, a series on the book of Micah, and we've come to chapter 2. And I'd like to read together the first five verses and consider uh, them together. So Micah chapter 2, beginning our reading at verse 1. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, Another cheery judgment in the prophets. Uh, uh, One of the difficulties of going through the prophets is they they alternate between messages of judgment and messages of hope. And the messages of hope are wonderful, but you have to also understand the messages of judgment that come. Um, And come not just to them, but to us as warnings and reminders for God's people. Um, and we want to think about, as, as we come to this second word of judgment from Micah, what he's driving at. Uh, some people have pointed out that Micah ministered for a long time, as many as 50-some years. Um, if we want to think about it, the longest possible for his ministry was around 50 years. And so even if he only ministered for 30 years, he still had a long history. And that the book of Micah seems to be kind of an anthology of his prophecies, um, we might say Micah's greatest hits put together um, in, in, a, in order by God so that we can learn things about his ministry, learn important things about the word that he brought, um, and has arranged it with a theological and spiritual purpose. And we can see something of that purpose working itself out in the fact that the first chapter, which was the first word of prophecy from Micah, was a word that dealt with idolatry. It was a word that dealt with the first table of the law, we might say, those requirements that God gives us for the duties that we owe to him, that we're to love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
Um, and so the first word of judgment comes as a result of their idolatry, violating that first table of the law. And so it's somewhat not surprising then to see as he turns to a second word of judgment that this second word of judgment touches on the second table of the law, the duties that we owe to our neighbors, how we love our neighbors as we love ourselves and how God's people failed to love their neighbors. Uh, This word of judgment speaks of covetousness and theft and oppression, uh, things that, that God hates. Um, And so this is another chance for Micah to do his job as a prophet, which was to remind God's people of what God's law required, show them how they had fallen short of God's law, how they had broken God's covenant, and if this covenant breaking were to continue, then judgment will surely follow. And always bringing them that message of hope that if you will return to the Lord, he will return to you. If you return to his covenant and keep his covenant, then you will receive the blessings and not the curses. Um, And so this word of judgment comes because of how they are treating one another. And Micah reminds them that God will see that perfect justice is done in the end. So that's really the message that Micah brings. God God has a plan for perfect justice. And we see that plan for perfect justice working out in in these few verses. So as we think about these verses together, I'd like to think about them um, under, under three main points. The practice of oppression that we see in this passage, the plan for judgment that God outlines, and finally the promise of restoration that might not seem evident as we first look at these verses, but I think is there. Uh, so the practice of oppression, the plan for judgment, and the promise of restoration. Micah has often been referred to as the champion of the oppressed, Um, someone who looks at oppression that he sees all around him and on a human level is is sorry for those who suffer, hates to see his his fellow people suffering the way that they are suffering under the hands of their brothers and sisters who are oppressing them. Uh, So it affects him on a human level, but more deeply it affects him as a prophet on a spiritual level. To see this as a gross violation of God's law, uh, his covenant, his holy will for his people, that they be a community, uh, that they be a community that looks different than the rest of the world, uh, that shows forth love for one another and and is is in a real sense a commonwealth um, in Israel. And so he, he sees it both as a human matter and also as a spiritual matter, and he speaks against it in God's name, against those who are plotting oppression. Um, In this case, it seems to be sort of the powerful, greedy land barons who are in power in Israel. Um, These people who are trying to gobble up land and territory. Um, If you're a fan of Westerns, this is almost always the villain in a Western movie. Um, a A powerful cattle rancher who's trying to drive out the smaller ranchers or the powerful farmer, powerful miner, you know, something like that where he's trying to drive out everyone else. And that seems to be what was happening in Israel, that's the people that Micah is speaking against. People of position, power, wealth, and authority. Probably the same people that should be, according to God's word and covenant, looking out for their neighbor. Uh, the very people who should have been ruling for their neighbor's benefit, looking out for uh, those who were poorer or less fortunate than them and who were instead taking advantage of them. And Micah describes their sin in um, in those in two short verses, the first two verses um, of our passage, um, they, the sin is described as people who 
plan and plot their evil on their beds. Um, there, there is no rest for the wicked. When they're in bed, when they should be sleeping, when everyone else is resting, when other people are resting from their evil deeds, these people are up late at night thinking about evil, um, planning their evil, plotting their evil, what they're going to do. Uh, they're, they're often meditating on what they're going to do, and when the morning light dawns, they do it. Uh, this is a sort of vivid picture that Micah gives us. They're they're, they're never at rest in their wickedness. They're, they're up at night plotting and planning it. They can't wait till it's morning time and they can go out and do it. It's almost as if in this vivid picture he gives us, as soon as it's first light, they get out and get busy. It's almost like they can't wait to go out and do the evil things they've been plotting and planning to do. Um, it's a vivid description for that reason, that as soon as the morning light dawns, they go out. It, it seems to indicate some kind of eagerness, um, it also seems to indicate some kind of boldness in what they do. Uh, because in the Bible, when, when light dawns, that's often the time where wickedness is driven out. Um, our Lord Jesus Christ said, you know, the wicked don't like to come into the light because their deeds are evil. They prefer the darkness. And we know that usually the darkness is the time when people get up to evil deeds. They often don't get up to, to evil when it's light, when morning comes. That's often the hope that's held out for God's people in the scriptures. Um, that's how God speaks of the morning in Job 38, verses 12 and 13, when God says to Job, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It's a wonderful poetic description of what God does in the morning, right? That he sort of takes the skirts of the earth and he shakes the wicked out of it when the light begins to shine. And that's the picture that Scripture gives us, that the morning light is usually the time when you can depend on the evil going back into their holes for a time till they can come out again when it's dark and do their wickedness. But the fact that these people come forth in the morning light and do their wickedness in the broad daylight shows that they're not just eager to do it, they're sort of brazen about doing it. They're bold about doing it. They're not, they're not worried about people catching them. I think that's what really is being, being taught here. There's no one to stop them. And so they can go commit their crimes in broad daylight. Um, when the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They do it because they can. Because no one's going to stop them. That's the nature of their sin. They plot, they plan, they're eager, they're brazen. And what do they do? Well, they take what they want. Right? Verse 2 says, they covet fields and they seize them. Houses and take them away. What they want, they take. Um, we can maybe remember a, a case like this of King Ahab seeing a vineyard that he wanted. Um, and make it his plan to get that vineyard, to take Naboth's vineyard away from him. He coveted that vineyard, and he finally took it away. Um, and when he tried to buy it, and he wouldn't sell it to him, he went, you know, remember, he went to his bed and sort of pouted. Um, and his, his wife, who was a real prize, came in and said, why are you pouting? You're the king. If you want it, go take it. Why don't you act like a king? And that's what he did. There was no one to stop him. Um, that, that's the picture that's given here, that what they want, they take. 
the subtleties of this verse seem to indicate that what they take by force, they take by force. And if they don't take it by force, they take it by some other trick. Uh, by loaning or foreclosing or filing fraudulent legal documents. However they are going to take it, they take it. Uh, that, that's all that they're motivated to do. Um, and, and what does Micah say that they are taking? What, what does this sin boil down to? Well, he says that in the second part of verse 2. They oppress a man and his house, a man as, and his inheritance. What are, what are these wicked people really doing? They're oppressing people and their house. And here it doesn't mean a, a physical house that you live in. It means your family. That they oppress a man and his family. They take away a man and his inheritance. Inheritance here doesn't mean that you know, he's left with nothing to leave his children. That's certainly true if you take away everything that somebody has. They don't have an inheritance to leave to others. But really what this means is they take away the inheritance they have from the Lord. And that helps us to see the real significance of the sin that Micah is speaking out about. Um, that, that when these people come and they take the property that is owned by people in the promised land, what are they really taking? They're not taking, at the end of the day, what belongs to people. They're taking what belongs to the Lord. Um, it, it's the Lord's inheritance that he's given to his people that they're taking away. That the land that they have is an inheritance from God, his allotment for their family in the land. And that was why when King Ahab came to Naboth and said, well, I want to buy your vineyard, I'll buy it and you go buy another one. And buy a better one. Um, and when Naboth refused to sell, Naboth said to the king, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. Because what was that vineyard? It was the parcel of land that had been handed out by God to his family. You remember that when they came into the promised land, they allotted the land by tribe. And the allotments went to tribes and they went to families. And what did that message tell every family? This is your portion from the Lord. This is your inheritance from the Lord. This is the provision he's made for you in the promised land. And why did the Lord give it to them? To provide for them. To give them a different kind of life in the promised land than they had as slaves in Egypt. Where nothing was theirs and they worked for cruel taskmasters. What was the wonderful promise that God made to his people? I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give you a place that's yours where you won't be a slave, you'll be free. You'll be freed by me to live a life that's provided to you by me. The Lord was giving them a land and an inheritance, a portion to be free in him. And to be provided for by him so that they might live and no longer need to be slaves. And he made provisions in the law, right? That even said, if you, if you become poor and needy and you need to sell a portion of your land, he set up his law in such a way that after time that land would come back to you. There would be a year of jubilee and that land would be returned to the original owners that God had given it to. That even if you had to sell yourself into indentured servitude for a time, there was a provision for your freedom and that when you were set free, the 
The person who had bought you for a time had to give you provision, allow you to stand on your feet. God said, I don't want anybody to be perpetually a slave. I don't want to be anybody to be perpetually under the heel of someone else. This is a place to be free. This is a place to be provided for by me. I mean, why did God set things up that way? Because the promised land was intended to be a spiritual picture. It was intended to be a spiritual picture of what life in the heavenly promised land is like. Where no man is a slave. Where no man scratches out a living for himself. But everybody is free and everybody is provided for by the Lord. The Lord wanted the promised land to be a picture of that. Where it truly was a family of God living in a state of holiness under the freedom and provision the Lord had given them. To be a sign of what heavenly life would be like. And one of the great covenant blessings was that God would be a God who provided for his people. That was what this place was supposed to look like. That's what the blessings of the covenant promised for faithfulness. And that's what the curses of the covenant warned for a people who didn't look like that. If it became a place of oppression, they had to know that what they were really doing is marring the picture that God had made. Um, Oppressing their own people was to mar the picture of heaven. It was to take what didn't belong to them, but ultimately belonged to the Lord. And that's the real crime that Micah is crying out about. You're taking not what is theirs ultimately, you're taking what is the Lord's and what the Lord has given to them. And if you take what's the Lord's, your quarrel is not just with your neighbor, your quarrel is with the Lord. Um, And that's, that's something that we all need to think about and meditate on. Right, again, you, you, we could be tempted to say, okay, so the application of your sermon is don't steal can- pieces of Canaan from people. All right, I'll get that right out on that. Thank you for that timely word. Um, is that what the Lord is reminding us of in this passage? No, what he's saying to us in a profound sense is all of this is still true for us. There's nothing that we have that we don't have on account of his grace. We are debtors to the Lord for everything that we have. Um, And it's especially an important warning for those who have a lot. Um, And and probably most of us in America, whether we think about it that way or not, in terms of how the whole world lives, we have a lot. Um, And it can be easy to forget that we have everything we have by God's grace. That we're debtors to him for everything that we have. That there's not one thing we have apart from his gift to us and that, every, that ultimately what that means is everything we have is really his. That we are stewards of what we've been given. Uh, we've been given to it to us so that we can use it for our good and so that we can help our neighbors who are in need. And so those who oppress their neighbors, who take what's not theirs, God hates Because this is ultimately, you're not taking what belongs to them, you're taking what belongs to me, that I've given to them. That's why God hates covetousness so much. 
Because you're desiring some, to take something from someone else that God has given to them. That's also why God hates oppression. When people use the power that they have to take things away from other people. God hates it. And that's important for us to remember. It's important for us to remember when we're occupying positions of power. Now, most of us don't occupy positions of big power. But we all occupy positions of power in the world in some way, shape, or form. You can think of your own life. There are probably people that you have power over. Or may one day have power over. Um, and, and we usually live in both worlds. You know, if you're a father and you're the head of the household, you're the head of the household, but you probably have a boss at work who you answer to. Um, you can be a leader in the church, but you still have governing authorities that you answer to. Both of us, we, all of us live in these kinds of worlds where we have power and we're under those who have power. We know what it is to be oppressed by people who have power. To be oppressed by people who have more power than we do. In big ways or in little ways. We know what it's like to be oppressed. And God hates oppression. You know why God hates oppression so much, I think? It's because he has more power than everyone in the world combined. And he never uses that power to oppress. He always uses the absolute power he has for good, for just, holy, and righteous purposes. He never uses that power to oppress. Um, and anytime you, know, you see someone who has more power over someone else who's oppressing them, um, and you have more power and can intervene, you know you have that feeling that you want to step in and help the person who's being oppressed. I think that's why God hates oppression so much. He looks at people who have a puny amount of power and watches how they use it and says, I will not stand for that. Um, and, and if we really want to know what, what God does with the power that he has, we need to look no further than our Lord Jesus Christ, who comes into the world with absolute power. Right Here is the one through whom all things were made, and without whom was not one thing made that has been made. He is the light who is the life of men. And does he ever use that great power he has to oppress? No, in fact, he actually comes to those who are absolutely powerless and helps them in their need. The one who can command the waves and the wind to be silent, who can command the water to support him so that he can walk on it, who can tell the blind to see and the dead to live. He never uses that power to oppress. What does he do? He sets the captives free. He washes feet. He lays down his life for sinners. That's why God hates oppression. Because he is a God who has more power than anyone else and never uses it for any other purpose than that which is holy and right and just and good. And so he comes and says to all of these people who practice oppression, you have to know that you're not the only ones making plans. You're not the only ones plotting and planning. That's the wonderful 
counter to this practice of oppression that God comes with in verse, in verse 3 is to say, in, in a wonderfully ironic, poetic justice, God comes and says, you know, I know you've been planning wickedness on your beds, but you all need to know something. I've been making plans too. Um, the artistry of Micah is wonderful, but he says in verse 3 that the Lord is devising disaster for the oppressor. And it's the exact same words he used to say devise wickedness. They were on their beds devising wickedness, remember. And God says, oh, you were plotting and planning? Guess what? I was plotting and planning too. Alas, you're planning wickedness? Behold, I'm planning disaster for you. It's a wonderful reversal, one of these wonderful poetic justice moments in the prophets of saying, you've been planning, God's been planning. You have a plan, God has a counterplan. And God's counterplan is perfectly matched in justice to what they've done. Um, Notice how the the pronouncement of his justice comes against them. Uh, It's dripping with, with irony. It's dripping with poetic justice. God says, against this family, I'm devising disaster. Family there should be in, you know, air quotes. This family. You've really been behaving like a family. Oppressing your neighbor, taking what belongs to them. You've been plotting, I've been plotting. I've been plotting against this family, these oppressors. And I I have a plan from which you will not be able to remove your necks. There's a yoke that's going to come down on you like you've put a yoke on other people. And just as the oppressed wanted to withdraw their necks from your yoke and couldn't, so you'll find yourselves under a neck you can't withdraw, a yoke you can't withdraw your necks from. And you walked brazenly out into the morning to do your wicked deeds, proud of your power. Well, I have a plan where you will not walk haughtily. Your necks will be bowed down because it'll be a time of disaster. Um, and what, what is God going to do? He's going to do to them exactly what they did to others. That's this, this taunting morning song that he talks about in verse 4. It's a picture of somebody mocking these, these rich land barons as they're led off into captivity and as they, they whine about their fate. And it's as if their captors are mocking them by repeating their words back to them. And what will these greedy land barons be saying while they're carried off into captivity? We are utterly ruined. Don't you feel sorry for them? They're utterly ruined. It's the exact thing they did when they took away a man's fields and his house and his family and his inheritance. They utterly ruined people, and now they say, we are utterly ruined. What else do they say? He changes the portion of my people. Another way of translating that would be to say, God cancels my inheritance. These greedy land barons who'd stolen from people are now saying, the Lord has canceled my inheritance. Can you believe it? changes the portion of my people, he, how he removes it from me to an, apost- to an apostate. He allots our fields. Someone else is getting my field, an unworthy person. It's exactly what they did as unworthy people, took away fields from other people. 
It's so ironic, this cry that they raise, how they're being so badly treated. Um, I loved what one commentator sort of summarized this, this lament of them. He said, isn't it too bad? It is so unfortunate what these rich and powerful people had to go through. What they coveted and stole is now being coveted and taken from them. They're going to end up with nothing. Doesn't it just break your heart to see them get what they deserve? But it's, it's the perfection of the Lord's justice that these people who oppressed and took away will be oppressed and have everything they have taken away. That the wicked will have come back on their head the, the wickedness that they planned for other people. They had a plan. God had a counter plan. They had a plan for wickedness. God had a plan for justice. And he will see that plan for justice enacted on these people. And they will be cut off and cut off forever. That's the dire warning of verse 5. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Uh, you will have no one left. Remember that if the promised land is a picture of, of heaven, it's meant to serve as a picture of heaven, then what does it mean to have no one left in the land? It's a promise not just of a loss of life, but a loss of eternal life. To be cut off from the presence of the Lord. That's the plan of judgment that awaits the wicked. And that's an important judgment to be reminded of that the Lord has a counter plan to the injustice of this word, this world. It's, it's a warning for all wickedness. It's a warning for all the wicked. That they might be planning, but God has a counter plan. They might even be succeeding for a time, but God is planning for justice to come. And that is his particular office in the world to see that justice is done. John Calvin reminds us of that. It is the particular office of God to repay to all what they deserve and to render to each the measure of evil they have brought on others. The wicked are to be warned um, that you might have a plan, but God has a counter plan. He has a counter plan for justice. And there's the warning what the wicked have sown when they sow the wind that they will reap the whirlwind. That God's perfect justice will be done. And we know that that perfect justice will be done one day soon when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in glory. That's the plan that God is devising now. For how Christ will come and put out wickedness from this world. Will hunt it out till he finds none of it. Um, that's a warning for the wicked. It's a warning for all of us in our wickedness. We might plan wickedness, but God has a counter plan. And the wicked are thereby to be warned, to turn from their wickedness. This serves as a warning for the wicked. It also serves as a comfort for the righteous. The wicked will not go unpunished. Nobody escapes scot-free. There is one in heaven who will see that justice is done. And so whatever the righteous have to suffer in this life, we can know that it's not because God doesn't have a plan. God always has a plan. 
a perfect plan to counter what's done in the wickedness of this world. And so that's a call for the righteous to be patient, to trust in the Lord, to trust in his wisdom, to trust in his timing, to know that he does all things well. It should also be a comfort for us not just to know that God does justice against the wicked, but also it's a wonderful reminder to us of the judgment we've escaped on the account of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is where we should all be in verse 5, apart from the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, cut off from the assembly of the Lord. Whenever we think about the perfect justice of God and the way he punishes wickedness, we remember just how vital the intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf is for the life of our souls. Because it's easy to, to point the finger at wicked people and say, they're wicked people. When you say wicked people, I know exactly who you're talking about. And we look over our shoulder to see if they're here and paying attention. right? Because we never say, we're the wicked people who deserve to be cut off from the land of the living. It's because the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to intervene, was willing to receive that judgment that we were owed, to receive the wrath and ruin that should have been ours on the cross, that he might set us free from it. Um, Apart from him, that same fate would await us, and so it's all the more reason for us to to trust and lean on him. Um, But this passage doesn't just speak about judgment, it it also gives us a promise of restoration. It's a flicker of promise. It might be easy to miss, but it's there in verse 5. As one commentator said, it's a flicker of promise, but it's there in verse 5. Therefore you will have none to cast a line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Now where is the flicker of promise there? Um, It promises another time when the lot will be cast. It's referring to that original apportionment of the land when the land was laid out and the line was cast to each family and clan. The flicker of promise here is it's speaking of another day when the line will again be cast. But even though verses 3 and 4 are a powerful picture of exile, here's a promise of restoration. When the same thing that happened originally in the promised land happens again. When there's another allotment and apportionment of a returning remnant. It's a picture that one day people will come back to this land. And why? Because the covenant of grace that God has made with his people is irrevocable. God will not forget his promise. And although he warned there would be a reckoning for covenant breaking, he also promised that when they went away into exile, that he would be a God who would come and find them. That that exile would be punishment for their law breaking, but it would not break their covenant with him. That wherever he scattered them in the world there, he would come to find them. And that's a wonderful promise that we, that we read about in Deuteronomy 1 through 6. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, that's the exile. 
and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the utmost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. There was a promise of a new beginning. It was stated in the covenant terms that they understood, but it spoke of a much greater restoration that was coming. This was one of the challenges when the exiles came back to the promised land and they would read things like this. I'll make you more numerous and more prosperous. And they looked around and said, we're smaller than we've ever been and we're poorer than we've ever been. Where, where is the promise of this great restoration? Well, it was speaking not just of a restoration to a physical land, but a restoration as a people that would be realized when the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world and a new kind of covenant would be made where their hearts would be reconciled to God and they would love him with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what was accomplished when Jesus Christ came into the world. Because he came into the world and went through an exodus, through his cross, and he triumphed over sin and death, overcame covenant breaking with his covenant faithfulness, and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, went into that eternal promised land. And what is he there doing in that eternal promised land? He's preparing a place for us in the assembly of the Lord. Isn't that the wonderful promise he left us with in John 14? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you, will, you may be also. There is a place in the assembly of the Lord for the righteous. There is that place, that portion that's ours that God has meant to preserve us always there in glory. That the Lord is preparing for us, tribe by tribe, family by family. That we might all live with him in blessedness forever. He's, he's planning. He's planning for us even now. He's preparing for us even now. And one day soon he'll come again in glory to bring us all to the place that he's prepared for us. That, that place that's ours in the promised land where we will be free, where we will be provided for by our God and where the wicked will be no more. What, what does the prophet keep telling us? He keeps pointing out to us two paths. There's a path with no future. That's the path of the wicked. The evil man has no future and the lamp of the wicked will be put out. Or the righteous who return to the Lord and have life with him forevermore. Who are planted in the courts of the Lord forever. Um, 
it lays out for us those two paths. And the difference is, will we repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or, we will, or will we walk our own way into death? Um, that's what the prophet sets before us. And he comes to us as prophets always have and said, see, I've set before you life and death. Choose life. Choose life in the assembly of the Lord. Put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and we'll dwell with him in glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that the words of the prophets are hard words for us at times, but important words for us to grasp and understand. We pray, Lord, that we would all hear clearly the warning that this passage gives to all the wicked, uh, that they might devise wickedness and it might even be in their hands for a time the power to do it, but there's also power in your hand and that you are planning as well. We thank you for that plan that you are working out through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is coming soon to execute that plan in the world. It's a plan for the rescue of the righteous and for the recompense of the wicked. As we pray, Lord, that we would all put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would not have to fear the day of his coming, but in the midst of our sorrows and persecutions would look up and hope for it. That we would be those who know their sins have been dealt with by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ um, and who in grateful response to that will love him and look for him or be eagerly waiting for him who's coming again not to deal with our sins but to save us. So we pray that he would come quickly. Pray that you would continue to equip your gospel to be preached so that men would continue to hear the good news of the gospel and hear and live and not have to face the judgment that's coming. Lord, help us all to escape through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.